Before we start the show, we want to let you know that we're taping a live episode of our podcast on November 16th in downtown Los Angeles. And tickets are on sale now. We will be joined by Mary McCormick, making her debut on the podcast, and we will be discussing with her the season six premiere. That's her first episode as a member of the main cast. And who knows? We might have some other surprises, too. You're not going to want to miss this. You can get tickets and get all the info on our website at thewestwingweekly.com slash live. That's thewestwingweekly.com slash live. Hope to see you there. Some things are hard to control, like the volume at a music festival. Other things are easy to control, like your in-home Wi-Fi. With Xfinity XFi, you get fast speeds and the ultimate control over your home Wi-Fi network with the XFi app. You can do things like see which devices are online and how long they've been connected, or set a Wi-Fi curfew for that someone who checks social media at 3 in the morning. So go ahead and take control of your Wi-Fi with Xfinity XFi. It's simple, easy, awesome. Go to Xfinity.com, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store to learn more. Xfinity Internet Required. Other restrictions apply. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Article. Article is inspired by mid-century modern and Scandinavian simplicity. They're an online-only furniture company that offers beautiful furniture. Why do they sell online exclusively? Because price matters, and no retail stores means that they don't have to pay expensive rent and charge you more. You've heard me talk about how much I love my chicha alpaca throw. Yeah, I have. I love it. It's a really lovely blanket that is comfortable, but it's also a design statement. Because like all of the article stuff, it looks great in my living room. You know that of an evening, I like to expound on my bomba poofs. I do know that. They are gorgeous. You can sit on them. You can sit on another chair, put your feet up on them. You can use them as a little table. And here's your chance to save $50 off of a purchase of $100 or more. Just go to article.com slash West Wing, and then your discount will be applied to your purchase. Once again, that's article.com slash West Wing. Go to article.com and check out the goods. Chicha. Poof. We're back. You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina. And I'm Rishi K. Sherway. And today we're talking about No Exit. It's season five, episode 20. Let me throw some names at you. This episode was written by Carol Flint and Deborah Kahn. The story was conceived by Carol Flint and Mark Goffman. And the episode was directed by Julie Hébert. Julie being the second person in the cast and crew uh, with an accent aigu in her name. Mm. And what was the air day? Oh, nice. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, April 28th, 2004. Here is a synopsis. After a black tie dinner, the president and his staff are locked down in the White House when a foreign substance is detected inside, forcing an odd coupling of people who are forced to occupy small rooms where they share personal reflections. And some turn confrontational when Toby accuses Will of backstabbing Bartlett. The odd coupling, sorry, just sounds like a great idea for a TV show. <laughs> As the inspection continues, the president, Fitterer, and Charlie submit to intense inspection while in other corners, CJ has strong career advice for Donna, and Josh queries security advisor Kate on why his joke was deleted from the chief's speech. Before we jump in, I want to say, you know, we we threw out in our last uh, podcast episode a request to come up with what Will Bailey's expositional nickname would be. Mm, Yeah, at Will Bailey, the Microsoft Office paperclip. Exactly. The the consensus seems to be that it would be a William Tell. A <laughs> William Tell. Right? Not bad. That's not bad. 
That's not bad. A variety of people suggested that, including Grace Dobbin, Tim Kirk, Ben Greenfield, Daryl Anthony, and uh, Amazon Queen Kate. I, I'm sure there are others. Thank you all. I think that's the clear winner. Great. I might still call you the. I might still refer to him as a Microsoft Office paperclip, though. Yeah, I like that too. But it's not as concise. There's a moment in this episode when President Bartlett says, That's what I call willpower. And I, I would like to add that voiceover to Will's Making It Rain in season four. Oh, yeah, that is his willpower. Sure. Before we even start, I just want to mention that when we were first launching the West Wing Weekly, we did some press and, and we did a few interviews and a couple people asked us, you know, what were our favorite West Wing episodes? What were we most looking forward to? And I remember um, on multiple occasions, you said, no exit. And, you know, I, I hadn't seen the episode at the time, but now I have, and I clearly understand why this is one of your favorites. Yes, I had a I had a great time. They, you know, great material written for me, and in one feature of it in common with one of my other favorite episodes to shoot Arctic Radar is that I got to work with Richard and uh, go head-to-head with him, take him on, and uh, I just loved that sort of challenge and opportunity. Yeah, this really, this is maybe my favorite Will Toby storyline since Arctic Radar, I think, which is also one of my favorites. And it's really nice to see well, one, it's nice to see you uh, really letting it rip. You know, we get to see Richard do his thing often, but it's nice to see you just like let it all out. And those scenes are fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, it was good fun to shoot. And also, I just think character-wise, the two of them, it's been bubbling under the surface, this sort of mutual resentment, anger, aggravation. And it's about time it bubbled to the surface. And I'm glad that the writers and uh, John Wells gave them the opportunity to go at it and get more of it out in the open. It's kind of a multi-scene couples therapy session. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. And as the synopsis mentioned, everyone is kind of sequestered into these different areas. And um, just quickly, here's where those different areas are. In uh, ring one, we have the president and Charlie and Debbie versus Anthrax. (laughs) Um, In ring two, we have Leo versus Abby. Mm, Good matchup. It's the drugs ring, maybe. In ring three, (laughs) we have Will versus Toby, the speech writing ring. In ring four, we have CJ versus Donna the uh, boys ring slash career advice ring slash Mm -hmm. uh, Bechdel test failure ring. I knew it was coming. (laughs) (laughs) And then in the final ring, we have Josh Lyman and um, Kate Harper in the uh, getting to know you ring. Indeed. The who knows what, what do they know? And it's a five ring circus this episode. That's right. Two other little things about the Toby Will ring. One, I love that after insulting Toby in a previous scene about his age, Toby is then whistling Sunrise Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Fiddler on the Roof, yeah. Which had actually, I thought, double resonance to me. Of course, he's saying, you know, uh, Toby says something about how he's sailing off into the sunset of his life or something like that. But also the lyrics of the song, Is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? It's kind of like there is a little bit of a father, a paternal thing with Will, and Will's kind of grown up and moved on, and it's almost like I think he's Toby is mourning the loss of their uh, more innocent familial relationship. And one last other thing is that in one of these scenes, Richard is, I think, rather inelegantly balancing a plank of wood on his hand. Mm-hmm. I think I made a play that I should be doing that because I'm incredibly good at it. I could balance it on my forehead. I could balance it on my nose. I could balance it on my foot. And that we decided the energy wasn't right for the scene. And also it would be weird that I had Cirque du Soleil in ability to balance things. 
<laughs> I was like, but oh, but I'm really good. They're like, yeah, you're too good. That's going to look ridiculous. <laughs> Special episode of the podcast. Oh, yeah. I'll try to do it and we'll link. I think that could make for great audio. Just like me saying, wow, folks, Josh is balancing this thing on his nose. I wish you could see this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have a wealth of guests for this episode. Yeah, we do. We have former Senator Tom Daschle, whose office was once targeted by an anthrax attack. First of all, the timing of this is crazy. I feel like we open a lot of our discussions with how is it that we're having this discussion on this day? Sometimes it's to the day. And indeed, today, although, uh, you know, the storyline in No Exit involves a possible bacteriological attack, we are talking to each other and discussing this episode on a day when multi-explosive devices have been discovered, having been sent to a variety of Democrats and liberals, including George Soros and Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Eric Holder. And even CNN. CNN itself, Maxine Waters. Yeah, and I, and I heard on the radio that CNN had a drill similar to what we see in No Exit today, and that most of the people involved, the way you do, figured it was just a drill. Right. Well, this is very real, unfortunately, and we're going to hear from Senator Daschle about the very real experience uh, that he had back in the weeks following September 11th. We also are going to catch up with Wilson Cruz, right on, who played Jack Sosa, who we first met in Access, and uh, makes a brief appearance in this episode, and it'll give us a chance to talk to him. And before that, joining us now is Eli Addy. The recently married Eli Addy. Why, thank you. Simmentov and Mazeltov, Mazeltov and Simmentov. I, <laughs> I see everything through uh, rose-colored glasses now. Eli, you are not a credited writer on this episode, but you did work on this episode. That's right. This is uh, an episode that was a little bit unusual for the West Wing because very often in you know broadcast TV, when you're doing 22, 24 episodes a year, you reach a point sort of uh, in the high teens when everyone's burned out from the year and a little bit behind the curve. So it was actually Carol Flint's idea to make up for lost time by taking an episode with discrete storylines. And I can't remember who had the idea of kind of a, a lockdown of the White House. We'd obviously done that once before on the show in uh, Isaac and Ishmael, but to just have interesting pairings of the characters in rooms and then we sort of divided up those storylines. It was actually the Toby and Will storyline was my storyline with Peter Noah. What was the concept that you pitched? Well, I was looking over the episode today a little bit and uh, just looking over the script, actually, and just remembering that I had worked for President Clinton and then I went to work for President Gore. And in the early <laughs> months, really, maybe first year of my time working for the vice president, we were really just trying to function as part of the Clinton White House. And as Gore began to start to run for president on his own in earnest, he had to separate himself more. He had to make bolder moves and position himself as his own man and do things that even by virtue of the fact that they indicated his own independence, started to upset people in the White House. You know, who were my friends? It came from that place, you know, where a bunch of months later would, you know, will be in his relationship with Toby as somebody who now didn't have to take orders from him and might even do things in defiance of him. And for myself as a White House speechwriter, these comedy roasts were incredibly complicated and political and actually a huge time drain. And I think it may have been George W. Bush, believe it or not, after September 11th, who went to one of these. I don't think it was a correspondence dinner speech, but 
just gave a serious speech and didn't bother to tell jokes. And I think at the time, I remember thinking that's really lame and he's not that funny, so he probably needed to do that. But there's something powerful about that move, essentially saying, you know, I'm a constitutional officer and I'm not hosting The Tonight Show. So I think those ideas, you know, sort of came together in my mind a little bit. I was wondering about what seemed to be maybe one liberty that you might have taken. Does the vice president actually speak at the correspondence dinner normally? No, he doesn't. Actually, I was looking over, um, and I sent this to you guys if it's of interest to you or to any of your loyal listeners, a rough preliminary write-up of what the scenes might be, when, I think, when I first proposed the story, and it was the gridiron dinner which is something Al Gore spoke at the gridiron. I don't really remember why it changed. It may be, maybe the thinking was people weren't as familiar with those other dinners. Do we have permission to link to your beat sheet? Absolutely. Wonderful. Will you explain to the listeners what a beat sheet is? And then I'm curious, would you always create this kind of thing to track a single plot line through a script? A beat sheet, when you're sort of in the uh, simmering kitchen of uh, episodic television, you, you refer to scenes as beats. Like a story might have, you know, if it, a story might have three beats, which are three kind of discrete plot events. So I guess a beat is slightly different than a scene, which is to say you might split a beat in two, or you might have a scene that's just a placeholder scene of two people walking into a room. But I think the heart of the original was Bob Russell had given this serious speech Toby didn't like it, but it ended with, in typical kind of West Wing fashion, heartfelt confessions from each to the other that they sort of respected each other. It, it ended in a good place. And Toby wished the president had given that speech. And um, this is a storyline, I think, about mortality in the political sense. And what's hard for Toby, I think, in the series and in this storyline is that he's working for a lame duck. His time is coming to an end. And the new generation is coming up, and I think it's hard to let go. But in the cool light of dawn, he has to admit that he admires what Will is doing. If only podcasts had been a thing back then, he would be looking forward to a very big podcasting career. This is true. This is very true. That would have been our big flash forward from season seven. Yeah. I think it times out about right. I think probably Toby is hosting a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's either that or he's got a merchandise line. Yeah. Well, I, I like how you have Will uh, essentially say, all right, there's someone better out there. Go do it. Go find him. You know, he really calls Toby on his own inaction. I'll comb the countryside. We went to Holcombville, New Hampshire to find one. Yeah. Calm the countryside. You go. If it's so important, you go. It's a very interesting thing in real politics. I've thought about this a lot, that when you take the great strategists, the David Axelrods, the uh, James Carvilles, the people who we, who we know who kind of got there at ground zero and launched presidencies, they never have two presidents. They only ever have one. I don't know why that is. Maybe you're in sync with the zeitgeist just for one fleeting moment, if you're lucky. I mean, it's so implausible and so impossible to do that anyway. And, you know, there's not really much Toby can say to that. He probably senses that he doesn't have another in him. Yeah, I get, but maybe it also speaks to the pendulum-like nature of politics and if so if you were right on the zeitgeist like you say it's usually going to be a swing back to some extent in the next cycle it's probably one of those things i mean it's it, it's not unlike writing a movie or creating a tv show that just happens to hit a moment in the culture by the way you got you're both so great in this episode and uh, i always it really enjoyed the toby will scenes 
up to this point. It's a great combination because there's this kind of energy and exuberance to Will that is sort of the anti-Toby energy. You're always kind of up to some degree and he's always down to some degree. There's a real clash, but a lot of love there too. Yeah, we've come a long way since Arctic Radar. Oh yes, for sure. <laughs> and this is one of my favorites, Arctic Radar is too. I always loved working with Richard, in part because even beyond the characters, our own energies and our own approaches to acting are so antithetical to each other that I always enjoyed working with him. And also an opportunity to go toe-to-toe with Toby slash Richard was a delight. I had a really good time shooting this episode, and I loved the material that you wrote for me. Maybe we've talked about this at some point on the podcast, but the West Wing set was actually a fairly social place. I've worked on TV shows where the set is closed to visitors and where it's considered a serious environment where, you know, people can't kind of wander in and out. The West Wing was anything but that. And in my time there, I was always inviting friends from politics, you know, senators would come visit, you know, different writers would wander down. And uh, you guys were always so fun and so social and wanted to meet guests and chat with guests, but not Richard. And the reason is that he liked to just stay in his head and stay in the moment and stay in the emotion of the scene. And I think he had the misfortune, he's such a wonderful actor, of being in an environment where no one else felt that way. I can't remember specifically this episode, but you'd sort of bring people down and Josh, you would come and socialize behind the cameras with whoever was there and Brad would and Allison would. And very often Richard would go around the corner and kind of hide in another room of the set. That's true. I wonder what that was like for you with such a different approach, with such a different energy being in the room with him. Did you ever feel like you were playing tennis and he was playing badminton? No, I think whenever I would work with Richard, I would respect his technique and his process because mine, as you point out, is a little bit more loosey-goosey. So I had no problem, you know, staying in it or not chatting Richard up in between scenes or in between takes even. I didn't need him to chat with me as part of my process. So I kind of like, I would play, I considered it, you know, an away game for me and we'd play in his stadium. It sort of works for a storyline like this too, because part of what you're acting with, I would imagine, is somebody who's not trying to not give you much, which is the character. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, I have one other question. This episode is a bottle episode. Is it was it meant to be less expensive to produce? You know, it wasn't meant to be less expensive to produce, which is something we should have thought about occasionally on the West Wing and, and never really did, <laughs> much to the detriment of Warner right. Brothers Studios. But um, it really was an episode meant to be written quickly. And you know something? I think shot in less than whatever we were shooting at that point, which was eight and a half or nine days, because the storylines were so discreet, you could just knock out everybody's scenes in a day. But I know that in the writer's room, it was it was Carol's you know concept to sort of make up for some delays or we hadn't gotten something in on time. And we were just a little bit crunched because you could have four or five writers, however many of us there were, all writing at the same time. And in two, three days, you'd have a draft of a script, whereas it would normally take at least a week, maybe two. And it was super fun. And one sort of very minor piece of trivia about this is that when I was working on the TV show House, I remember we were having a meeting there and somebody said, what are unconventional episodes we could do this season? It might have been season six of that show or something. And I thought of this episode and I said, what about a lockdown of the hospital? And we just pair off characters who are sort of unlikely. And um, we did that episode. It was a basically a newborn had gone missing in the hospital. And Hugh, it was Hugh Laurie's directorial debut on the show. Very cool. Makes sense. 
Eli, thank you so much. Of course. A great pleasure. So let's start with the cold open. We began, everyone is very pleased with the president's speech at the correspondence dinner. As we are returning from the dinner, the president and Debbie and everyone is just, what a delight. He killed. Right. And uh, I wasn't sure if this was going to be another case, as we have often mentioned, where um, people are celebrating a little too early. Mm-hmm. You know, he's done the thing and it co- goes on and it seems to be fine. You killed, but will you be killed? <laughs> but, um, huh? I think that the other shoe does drop, though, as we find out later in the Will versus Toby ring. The victory for Toby ultimately ends up being hollow. Also, in the first moments of the cold open, you can tell that the show is setting something up. We don't know what it is, but there are these stylistic moves that seem different, both in terms of the camera and the sound. There's this focus on these little moments and exchanges. The president gets a cigarette and then... Debbie has a box of mints, and there's this peculiarity to the way that those moments are shot, and we don't know why they're getting this kind of focus at first. Yeah, I like the feel. I wrote the same thing. Uh, Several odd little close-ups seem to augur that something's about to go awry, and I don't even know why. Some, you know, close-up on a cigarette pack, close-up on the handoff of the flower arrangement. Yeah. Something clever. This is why I could never direct, because I can't even articulate why these little close-ups make me uneasy as a viewer in just the right way, but they do. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we benefit from is the fact that the show has a very clearly defined visual style. And so these little things depart from that, and it is a little subliminal or not so subliminal signal to us that something's going on. And it just makes everything seem suspicious. Yeah, and heightened. And then finally Debbie sneezes and the sensor goes off and we find out that there's maybe there's been this biological attack. And then suddenly nothing seems innocuous. That one little cut, and I've watched it a couple of times, seemed a little odd to me because right off of her sneeze, it's almost like you see a line on a readout of, yeah, like it's yeah. the audio of the sneeze. Is it, is it meant to be that direct cause and effect? It played almost as comical to me, that one little moment. I, I You know, I think, of course, we find out later that it is actually a live drill. But in the moment, I was like, oh, is there something that she had breathed in? So in the moment when she sneezes, all the whatever pathogen like yeah. suddenly gets expelled in the air right. and then the, the atmospheric detector catches it off of right. came out of her mouth. Then they cut to her little bottle of Afrin and it's labeled anthrax. And it <laughs> that that, she, she put that in her nose and then sneezed it out. Oh, uh, yeah. Which ring would you like to start our discussion? We've already talked a little bit to Eli and Richard. Should we go to the Will Toby ring first? Why not? Let's get it out of the way. The first thing I wrote as uh, <laughs> Toby grabs Will and kind of uh, brings him, you know, makes him go into the his Will's old office with him, was never go with Toby to a second location. <laughs> yeah. That's on Will. You never know what's going to happen. Well, you do know there's going to be some complaining. Right. Here's one thing that caught my ear. You're upset because the VP didn't use any of your jokes. I'm upset because he didn't use any of anybody's jokes. Because he gave a humorless sermon, not a humorous roast. It's like Toby's speaking in couplets singing similar Uh, notes. I I wonder if it was something that got caught by any other folks and they just let it go and said, who'll notice? Maybe one guy at most? (laughs) Well, I am that guy. I don't mean to boast, but if you make a speechwriter speak like Dr. Seuss wrote, then expect to hear about it from at least one podcast host. Boom. Nicely done. (laughs) (laughs) I was surprised by the internal rhyme, but as far as the actual content, this whole dynamic is so 
fascinating and rich. And um, oh, I love in the early section of this when um, Toby says, From now on, any joint POTUS v. POTUS appearance, I clear his speech. First of all, no. Yeah, I love to see that that's where Will is now with him. Like, you're not my boss in any way. <laughs> I don't answer to you. And uh, yeah, it's a great line. Uh, the delivery of it is both so beautifully Will and also this is just like the joy of having you as a friend now. I mean, I there are so many layers to it. You can and, see the threads of my own personality. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I was like, could they have written this actor a better line? I don't think so. That's very funny. I, I rewatching this for the first time in many years, although a small bit of it is on my reel. I thought to myself, that is such a Josh thing to say. And I think it's probably because I've <laughs> borrowed it for years since then. <laughs> I think I just sort of processed it and absorbed it uh, from that moment on. It is great. The sarcasm, the indignation and the straight up just f- you of it. <laughs> exactly. This is great. Will ends up scoring all of the points, which I think is also something new. We aren't used to this. You know, like in Arctic Radar, there's a great kind of, if we're going to bring sports into it, it's more like a tennis match and there's a great volley back and forth. But here it just feels like point after point goes to Will. Yeah, I agree. Uh, So much so, though, that by the end you feel, I think, a certain pity for Toby. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That it's like, oh, now, so he's going to win it like that. (laughs) Forget about the Will knockout. You know, Toby's going to win on points at the end of this bout. (laughs) Pity points. Right. (laughs) Like this line. According to you, he's the only one tonight who didn't look like a buffoon. And he's the only one who wasn't taking your advice. So add one to the other and tell me what you get. And Toby is really just working on the fumes of his rage and pride more than any actual great points. Right. Yeah. It's going to take him a few scenes, but he'll get to the gooey center by the end. Yeah. But then after the Secret Service guy tackles Toby, Will's whole demeanor kind of changes. He knows now that he's won the argument and he got to see Toby get taken down literally. Right. Just bonus points. (laughs) And so now he's having fun. Like Toby's sulking, but he's like, you know, he can offer him a soda. He can be helpful. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I took those all as extra little jabs because Toby's not going to want to take any help. Anything you mention is now something that he cannot use or do. (laughs) Yet on paper, Will's being the good guy. Right. Exactly. And I love and I suspect that that it's a Richard uh, invention, that little moment where he just bangs his head against the wall. And that actually hurts. (laughs) Kind of played it beautifully. And I'm sure he came up with that shtick. That's great. You know, eventually the real meat of this comes out, I think, the accusation that Toby is jealous of Will. I think Toby at first can't even fathom it, but Will says, You've had one win in your career. One. And you're looking sunset in the face, and I'm just starting out, and that's eating you apart like some kind of psychological melanoma. And it's true. Toby has lost almost every election except for this one that's put him in this office. And Will is coming off of a victory where he got a dead Democrat to win in a Republican-controlled Orange County. Indeed. It's a pretty good track record. And really, like, for whatever challenges Russell might give him, he is the incumbent vice president, and he's alive. So, you know, he's definitely starting from a better place than he was on the last one, and he won that one. Yeah, that's right. I like that also there are some moments of pettiness to Will's always having to be right in these scenes, too. Like he's squirting seltzer bottles while Pompeii's in flames, while... Volcanic ash. What? Rome burned. Pompeii was blanketed in volcanic ash. I want to know, Bob Rose. I just read that. Dick. (laughs) (laughs) And also very similar to 
me. <laughs> that is the kind of thing I would say. Toby will take all his pity points. Will will take all his petty points. Nice. One thing that doesn't happen in this episode, for once in season five, the title of the episode is not said. Mm. And in fact, it's not said in a nice way. But it's another moment where Will gets to win, right. you know, a petty point. He knows which playwright wrote no exit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he knows which line of dialogue from that play Toby is thinking of when he says, It's like something out of Beckett. Right. I'm so grateful that the words no exit don't come out of anybody's mouth in that scene or any other. They showed great restraint yes. at last. It is a terrific set of scenes and definitely, for me, the highlight of this episode. I mean, I think in the other rings, there are great things too. Yeah, I really like this episode. Yeah. Um, rewatching it uh, reconfirmed my enjoyment of it. Let's go to another ring that I particularly loved, which was the CJ versus Donna ring. Sure. It's brutal, I think. I don't, we've, mm. because we've never seen these two at odds. We've heard Donna just recently in Access talk about how much she admires CJ. And it's painful because at multiple points in their exchange, Donna asks CJ to level with her. And then when CJ does, Donna doesn't want to hear it. Yeah. I think it's a very well-written and well-acted friendship fight piece. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody knows how to push each other's buttons like, you know, dear friends. And they do. And they alternately, you know, push each other away and pull closer. And, you know, it's, it's a good dynamic. There's a lot of good, juicy stuff happening. Yeah. I find it incredibly believable. And all of Donna's moves and deflections and denials all seem so real and consistent. He's gone out of his way to give me every opportunity he can. He has. Okay. Hasn't he? Absolutely. CJ. If he was giving you every opportunity, you'd have grown out of this job three years ago. I can't blame him. He's never going to find anybody else as capable as you. I wouldn't let you go either. And then she says, you can't blame Josh. And this is for me, the real bite of it. CJ says, don't blame Josh. It takes two of you. You choose to stay. And we've seen that when uh, Donna was offered a job at a startup. You don't understand. I'm talking about full-time. Issues director for CapitalScoop.com. Is this her operating budget? She's starting salary. And she didn't take it. And, uh... Yeah. I mean, she, we've seen she's been asking for more. She hasn't always been getting it. Or when she has been getting it, she gets these little breadcrumbs. And yet she has never said, you know what, enough is enough. I can go get a job somewhere else. I wanted to hear CJ say, I think you should read this and then see her quietly slip a copy of Codependent No More to Donna. <laughs> Even, I mean, like Ryan Pierce figured it out. Right. He was able to leverage his experience and get a better job right away. And then Donna goes back again to CJ, asks her again. She says, what should I be doing instead of this? And CJ says, anything. You can go to lectures and symposia and look for opportunities. and Anything that doesn't have to do with Josh Lyman. Wow. Okay. Let's not do this. Uh, yeah, she does not want to face uh, the reality of her situation, at least as sketched out by CJ, but I think it's accurate. Um, Josh is holding her back. Yeah, I don't know, really know what Donna's asking for or expecting, you know, to get when she says, what is it that I need to do? Yeah, no, she, I think she's saying on some level, tell me what I want to hear and not what I need to hear. Yeah. And the thing that really kills me is the way that this ring closes out. You know, they are given the all clear and CJ stops and says, Donna. Yeah. Good night. Good night. And Donna's good night in response just crushes me. The 
coldness of it, ah, it just, it's brutal. But do you feel happy when Josh's final uh, iconic yell of Donna goes unanswered and he comes out to look for her and there's just uh, air? I do feel happy about that. I feel happy for Donna. It is sad. I mean, it goes back to the thing that we talked about earlier in the season where I felt like this season, you know, the first four seasons were about how this family stays together. And this season is feels like stories about a divorce. And there's something just sad about that. But at the same time, I think it's it, it, this is really well done. To me, it was uh, it's akin to Donna's version of the chief at the end of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, <laughs> yeah. throwing his <laughs> sink through the window and getting out of there. Yeah. Are you saying that uh, she has metaphorically smothered Josh Lyman with a pillow? I am. Spoiler alert, I am. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's just her love for, for Josh that she's killing. That's right. Or maybe I'm just thinking about what I would like to do. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's take a quick break. Support for the West Wing Weekly is brought to you by Simply Safe, home security done right. Simply Safe is home security you'll actually love using. It's really thoughtfully designed so you can blanket your home with protection and never notice. It's got all kinds of great little touches like gentle reminders if you're leaving with a window open. Most importantly, Simply Safe is really good at its job. CNET, the wire cutter, PC Mag all named it their top pick for home security. Over 2 million people use it every day. Learn more about how Simply Safe can help you today. Go to simplysafe.com/westwing. That's simplysafe.com/westwing. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace. That's right, and we're not just pitchmen, we're also clients. <laughs> It's true. We use Squarespace for the West Wing Weekly website, thewestwingweekly.com, and I like Squarespace so much that when I had to make another website for myself, for my own projects and portfolio. I use Squarespace again for that website, you know, and I have a web design background. I have been paid by other people to make websites for them. And now at this point, when it came time to make a new website for myself, I said, you know what, rather than all of the work that I'm going to put in to create custom CSS and all this stuff, I, like, I can get everything that I need with Squarespace. I'm putting myself out of work, basically. Ha. Squarespace makes it very easy to get creative with your website. That's right. There are beautiful templates and modules that you can just drag and drop in place and they just work. That's right. So if you've got a blog or a vlog or something to sell, some other slog, any kind of log, if you're selling <laughs> logs, you can do it through Squarespace. Go start your website now at squarespace.com slash Westwing and you'll get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code Westwing and save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. And now back to the show. Before our introduction, though, to the CJ Donna scene, we get a little bit of, uh, speaking of petty points, <laughs> we get a little exchange in the return of Wilson Cruz. Yes, we love our Wilson Cruz. We got a chance to talk to him, and let's ask him about his experience on The West Wing, which sadly was limited to just these two episodes. Joining us now is Wilson Cruz, who played Jack Sosa, CJ's assistant press secretary in this episode and in episode 518, the documentary episode Access. You may have first seen Wilson in My So-Called Life, where he played Ricky, or most recently on Star Trek Discovery or the Netflix hit show 13 Reasons Why. Wilson, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for asking. The fans demand it. <laughs> well, that's nice. Yeah, you actually responded to the 
episode access you tweeted some really interesting information about that episode that we had no idea so we we had to find out from you directly what that experience was like before we talk about this episode let's talk a little bit about about that one and how you ended up on the west wing yeah i mean i was a huge west wing fan from the beginning it kind of brought together everything that interests me right like great acting and great politics and it came at a time when when we all needed it i was way too young apparently to play any part for a while we kept submitting me for stuff, and they were like, huh. it's too young, or looked too young, maybe. And then finally, there was this episode, and uh, it was an odd audition, because first of all, we all knew the story about the West Wing and how you had to say everything, you know, word for word. And so when we walked, when I walked into the, to the audition, and they were asking us to improvise, I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Huh. And the best example of that was we were sitting around waiting for a big lighting setup that was going to take a while. And Alex Graves, who directed the episode, comes out of the blue and was like, so we have some time. I have an idea. We're just going to ask you to come into this office and uh, we're just going to I'm going to ask you some questions on camera. And so you see everybody kind of like freak out. <laughs> My blood would have run cold. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily, like I, I said in that tweet, I had kind of created a backstory for this guy because there was no information about who he was. And I just kind of created a backstory about how I got there to begin with. <laughs> and uh, luckily, when I got in there to do the on-camera interview, he asked the right questions. <laughs> and so I had some answers. And I remember, at, you know, it was like five or 10 minutes and they used a lot of it, to be honest with you. And um, I just remember seeing Alex's face at the end of that and him going, where did all of that come from? And I was like, well, it came from my homework. Where did that backstory come from? I mean, you had it at the ready and, and it turned out to be really useful. But how did you come up with uh, Jack's backstory? I think I decided that he was pretty scrappy and that uh, he had a real ambitious streak to him, but also that he was a bit of a, an, an activist. I liked the idea of him being combative with CJ. I watched the show a lot, so I felt like she was the kind of person who would appreciate some scrappiness on her staff, because she's kind of scrappy. I wrote for the paper, the student paper there, and I was writing articles basically about criticizing the administration really about their issues on gay issues and racial issues. And I, on a lot, kind of wrote this letter to CJ asking if she'd see me because I wasn't getting really a response from them and I just thought I'd give it a shot. I like that you came up with an origin story, a backstory that not only reflected well on Jack, but reflected well on your boss and on, on her having hired you. It, it was a, it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, well, thank you. I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> it's very West Wing. Yes, it is. Yeah, well, and I think it helped that I was a big fan of the show and that I knew the tone of it. And so I could, I was confident in, in the story that I was building for myself. And I also liked the idea that CJ and Jack, she appreciated his ambitiousness, right? And so if she saw herself moving to another job, which she eventually she did, I was also setting myself up, really, as an actor going, well, if she ever moves on from being press secretary, I was like, I could place myself in a good position to replace her in some way. Huh. So what happened for this second episode? How did you find out that they wanted you back? And, was, and this must have been a different experience without the um, documentary kind of setup. Right. You know, they called, they were like, hey, is Wilson available? And I was at the time. And I liked that they wrote this kind of, for lack of a better term, bitchy uh, scene. Press detail for the Codell. Have a fabulous time. What's... Faxes need to clear a 90-minute window before briefings. Try and keep track of your time zone. And don't drink the water. Did it have a different feeling that time because it was not an improvised situation? Did it feel more like what you had been expecting the first time? 
Yes. I think the script supervisor, if I remember correctly, came up to me and says, there's a the there. And I was like, noted. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like the West Wing I know. (laughs) I was hoping for more walking and talking, you know? Yeah, you, but you got a fishing pole, which most people don't get. That's true. <laughs> There's not a lot of prop humor in the West Wing. I don't think I've ever uh, used a fishing pole ever again in my life. I think that's the only time I've ever touched one. <laughs> so even though you didn't come back onto the West Wing, did you end up working with anybody from the show again later on? No, but, you know, I became, you know, friendly with... Um, Rob Lowe? No. Josh <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's usually who... Oh, but here's, here's a good piece of trivia... I wore Rob Lowe's suits. Wow. Yeah, which was funny for me because I thought, you know. Dude, you're in good shape. Rob Lowe's body has been <laughs> in this suit. <laughs> I once wore one of Rob Lowe's suits around one of my legs. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually met him. And, you know, f- lack of things to say when you meet somebody. He was coming out of a bathroom. I was going into it. And I was like, hey, so dumb. Hey, you're Rob Lowe. And he was like, yeah, how are yeah. you? I was like, I wore your suits on the West Side. Like, Interesting. <laughs> I look back at that, I'm like, that's probably how I would have responded too. Uh, but anyway, I did become friendly with Brian Poth, who we actually met on there. And we've remained Facebook friends through that experience. He was one of uh, CJ's other yeah, he was he yeah, he was the brownish hair one, not the black hairish one who wore the tie, the other guy. And Allison Jenny actually, whenever I see her out and about, always remembers for some reason my name. <laughs> you, you had uh, you had fun working with her? I loved I loved loved working with her. I mean, it was it was an ideal situation and she was really generous. It makes me feel like that's what it would probably would have been like to be an assistant to CJ as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was very much that. And she kind of treated us that way on set. And it was really lovely. Yeah. She was fantastic. Wilson, what's the next thing that people can see you in? Uh, Well, Star Trek Discovery premieres season two on January 17th. Awesome. Right on. You can find that on CBS All Access in the States and then on Netflix internationally. I'm also producing a six-part documentary about uh, the history of LGBT images on television. So it's been a big project that I've been a part of for the last three years or so. It's going to take a while before we it's all done, but I'm excited about people seeing that. Awesome. That's great. And if people want to stay in touch with you about that and get updates, they can follow you on Twitter, right? Yep. WCrew73 on Twitter, also WCrew73 on Instagram, and my name on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I really, really enjoy the show. I, I listened to it despite the fact that I was on the show, but it, it helps relive those lovely West Wing moments. No kidding. Oh, that's that's awesome. so cool. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Let's move on to yet another ring. How about Josh Lyman and Kate Harper? Sure. Kate is a G for grabbing that water. I think she proves that she's a G in basically all regards. Except I didn't like that at the very end, she kind of told him about the situation with the submarine and Panama. I was like, come on, you know, I don't think she owed that to Josh to sort of, um, it just lowered her kind of badass tight lip uh, <laughs> characterization that she actually gave him a little nugget there at the end. In my interpretation of it, what I thought was that between the note, you know, where she said, you have to kill this line of the speech. And when she tells him something had happened where that information was now no longer embargoed. Like I thought it actually might've happened during the time that they were there, you know, while she was on her laptop, she got some piece of information that she's like, okay, now it's safe to tell him. 
Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I just would have liked it better had we learned that as an audience, <laughs> and, but she had left it with him as it wasn't funny. Yeah, you just want him to stay in agony. <laughs> That's a great moment. They're good together, and his uh, reaction to it wasn't funny. Yeah. But it's funny. It's great. It's nice to see Josh just almost get broken by the idea that there's someone who knows more than he does about so many things. Right. I think he's just used to being the guy who finds stuff out and and knows stuff. And so he can't find out about what's going on with Panama. He can't find out what's going on with where she was even stationed, where she was in a lockdown before. She doesn't tell him. I mean, you know, he's like, I've got code word. He tries to show off yeah, in front of I her. I love that he tries to flaunt his code word clearance. Yeah. She's having none of it. I could look you up. I have code word clearance. Not this code you don't. It's great. Even just the little touch of how did you know the ventilation was shut off? It's like, it's hot. <laughs> that won her a lot of points with me. Yeah. I am excited to um, meet Mary McCormick in a few weeks when we have our live show, our season six premiere live show. That'll tape on November 16th. In Los Angeles. Which, yes, I'm sorry, is Shabbos. Mm. If you start walking now, you'll get there in time. <laughs> right. Buy the ticket in advance. That's right. And then all you're doing is having a comfortable seat. Yes. Or buy the ticket and then you'll notice <laughs> at Ticketmaster for an extra $17, we will send a Gentile to your house to carry you <laughs> on his back to the venue. <laughs> it's, uh, it's under a convenience fee. <laughs> slash Shabbos Goy. Shabbos Goy. Okay. Let's move on to other rings. Okay. What ring? Leo versus Abby. Sure. This one was sort of about Xanax, but it was also about their individual marriages to the president. To the same man. Yeah, this one cuts pretty deep, too, I think. Yeah. I mean, we start off, Leo finds out that Abby is uh, volunteering. She's doing the graveyard shift. We try not to call it that in front of the patients. She's doing a midnight to 8 a.m. shift at a clinic, and Leo didn't know, and even though the president does, obviously, and, and she says, he never tells me anything either. And I think, again, this is a little bit of a shocker for Leo to, like with Josh, to suddenly be out of the loop on something. We've seen this season that the dynamic between the president and the first lady has changed. And really what, what she has decided to do, the kind of power that she's asserted for herself has changed too. And she's maybe not offering herself up as a more easily controlled, more manageable kind of asset in the roster. Mm -hmm. And then it gets... Uh, compounded later when Leo sees her taking a pill, which sounds like it's an anti-anxiety pill. She has a little bit of a, sort of a soliloquy about uh, the physical effects of the kind of daily stress that they live under. Relieving those conditions is the one responsible course of action I can take. I am sorry it is not a course of action that's available to you as an addict, or which is implied. I liked that whole interchange. It's, it's like you say, I think she's finally, she's deciding, she's always been a formidable presence and her own woman and professional, but I think there's some things, ever since the Zoe kidnapping, I think she's been working towards kind of this moment where she's living her life for herself and taking care of number one in a way that suggests uh, some disharmony at home. Yeah. I really appreciate that they've given the kidnapping, you know, this very long shadow that we still see, we still feel the effects of it in these in these ways, even if it's not so explicitly called out here. It's not like, oh, we wrapped up that subplot and everything is sprung back to normal. Yeah, you're absolutely right. On lesser shows, of which there are many, often characters will go through something extreme, and then there's just a complete emotional reset, as if 
that trauma had never happened. It's yeah. great that its presence is still felt many episodes later. Yeah. So the final ring of conflict is in this medical examination sector with the president and Debbie and Charlie, um, the ones who perhaps have been already directly exposed to anthrax or some other agent. They don't, we don't know what it is. As we mentioned at the beginning of the, this episode, we spoke to former Senator Tom Daschle about his experience when his office was targeted with anthrax. And he told us all about it. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to do it. Nice to meet you both. Senator, we, we are talking this week about an episode of The West Wing in which there's a biological attack that comes through the mail. And we wanted to talk to you just to find out what that's really like. Well, it's very scary, frankly. It's, uh, it happened to me 17 years ago. 28 people were affected in my office. Five people had died uh, in the weeks just prior to that in similar instances. And so there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of panic. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of trepidation, not really knowing. I think we know more now than we did back then. But we had a ricin attack just a couple of weeks ago in the mm -hmm. Pentagon. Could you walk us through what actually happened? Do you remember where you were that day and, and how you found out? Just sort of walk us through the events that occurred. What happened, uh, of course, uh, happened on the 16th of October, which was a month and five days after 9-11. 9-11 was a very traumatic experience. I was the majority leader of the U.S. Senate at the time. And uh, because the whole episode around 9-11 was so tension-filled and so problematic, I ultimately uh, developed a serious migraine headache. And uh, I went to the NIH that morning, the morning of the 16th of October, and got an MRI and uh, waited for the results and found out that there was nothing wrong. It was just a lot of tension, probably related to 9-11. Came back to my office very euphoric and relieved that there was nothing serious medically wrong. But I had no sooner gotten to my office in the Capitol when my chief of staff broke into the office and said, we've got a serious problem. 28 people of our staff were just exposed to what we think was anthrax. A young intern that morning had opened an envelope and it exploded into the room, aerosolized anthrax all through the room, quickly getting into the HVAC system, spreading through the whole building. Hmm. And of course, the 28 people were then sequestered in that room. They couldn't leave. The Capitol Police came, they came into the room just to investigate. They were then exposed to the anthrax. I went over and I was exposed, but, uh, and, and, and so the, the more we realized uh, what serious circumstances we were in, we immediately began calling emergency personnel. We contacted the CDC and NIH. They rushed emergency personnel. I got a briefing somewhere that night around two in the morning, just trying to better understand what we ought to be doing. We really didn't know even then, what were the right things to do? We were then told to, we could go home, change clothes, and we were asked to bring our clothes back in a garbage bag the next morning, which we did. And because the heart building by then was shut down, because the anthrax spores had now gotten through the HVAC system all through the, the heart building, we uh, brought our, our bag of clothes into the Capitol building. 
And uh, there they were collected and finally, I assume, destroyed. But we really still were living in the dark. Fortunately, we had a, a young expert, medical expert at the time, working at NIH, whose name was Dr. Greg Martin. He finally uh, made the decision, in fact, overruling other people in government uh, and vociferously arguing with them that we all ought to be prescribed Cipro, a, a drug that uh, you're probably familiar with. We didn't know how long, but they had tried Cipro on monkeys and realized that Cipro had a positive effect, but they just used their own calculations. Well, if a monkey weighs this much, an individual might weigh this much. Let's just assume that we had a double or triple the, do the, the dosage just to accommodate the weight differences. So we were all assigned, I think it was 100 days. It may have been longer for those who were directly exposed. And that's how my uh, anthrax experience started. So this kind of scenario was something that hadn't been anticipated or prepared for? Not at all. We had no clue what to do. Ultimately, everybody in the Hart Building were evacuated. They shut down the Hart Building completely. It was shut down for, I think it was around 100, 120 days. They actually stripped out just about everything inside the building and completely reconstructed it from the inside out. That took a long time, I think four or five months before it was completed. Did your security protocols have to change drastically after that? They did. Uh, I, Kind of a funny story. Uh, one night I came home and there was five or six emergency cars around my home and there were all kinds of sniffing dogs. And um, there was a box on my doorstep and uh, on top of the box, it had jerk of the week. And I had to explain to them that I had just recently subscribed to a South Dakota <laughs> meat jerky plant uh, that sent me my first installment of meat jerky. But given the fact that it said jerk of the week, they were concerned. The dogs loved it. But uh, uh, nonetheless, um, but yes, my security went from 12 hours to 24 hours. The whole way we look at mail uh, and process mail now was totally changed. All mail that you send to the Capitol, if you were going to send a letter to your congressman, it is now opened off campus in these very secure areas with people in, in what look like moon suits that uh, open up the mail and then make sure that it's not contaminated and then send it on to the members of Congress. Within the building has changed. They now have detection mechanisms in place, uh, but uh, we still have a long way to go. I mean, you bring up, even with the jerk of the week package, you bring up an, an, <laughs> a good point, which is that people can still mail you things even when it's not sent to your office. In this episode, in fact, we find out in the end that the scenario is that a, a letter was sent to the president's body man to his home address that he brought into the West Wing and opened it there and put it in the recycling bin. And that's what set off the sensors. So even with all those safeguards, it seems like the possibility for contamination is still really high. Or do you feel like we've got it under control now with the things that we've learned since 2001? Not at all. I, I just made a comment today at a, a public meeting that we held here at the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense that I thought on a scale of one to 10, we were probably at a four. Uh, we, we've, we've made progress, but we have a long, hmm. long way to go. I think uh, mail going to Capitol Hill is probably quite safe now. That's close to a 10, perhaps. But as you correctly point out, there are so many other ways. What do we need to do to get from uh, a four closer to a 10? 
Well, first of all, we have to make it a much higher priority than it is. We lament frequently around here that we have a lot of supporters, but we have few champions. We don't really have a lot of people who have made this a policy that deserves the kind of attention, support, and, and resources that is required. You know, we spend the equivalent of about one half of one aircraft carrier on biodefense, and yet it has the potential. When you look at all the deaths created uh, over the last hundred years, we've lost more people in circumstances involving either natural or intentional causes than all the wars put together. So we really don't have the right prioritization. And I imagine to some extent it's a public education issue. It is, no question. We have a lot of work to do in educating the public. And another thing we haven't really talked about is how much misinformation can sometimes occur, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And that lack of good information is another major challenge. Senator, what did you think of this episode of The West Wing? Well, I, I just to the point we've just discussed, uh, you know, in terms of educating, one thing about West Wing that did so well is really brought some of these issues into the living rooms of families all over the, the world, really, but especially the United States, and made those issues real to a lot of people that otherwise may not have given a lot of thought. And I think you elevated, uh, the West Wing elevated, the whole uh, challenge that we face with regard to biodefense and did, I think, a real service to the country in doing so. Did watching it feel like an accurate portrayal of what it's like to be locked down in a situation like that? It did. I, I must say, I wasn't locked down like uh, the story unfolds, but my staff were for a long period of time. They were locked in that room. And so that part of it was very real. And, you know, even though you may be able to leave the, the uncertainty, which West Wing captured so well in that episode, the uncertainty around circumstances, how safe were they? How, how much in danger were they? What life-threatening circumstances were they facing? And uh, uh, the only thing I would say, I would take issue a little bit with the fact that uh, nobody was told what was really happening. And I think that's a mistake. I, I think we have a responsibility to be as transparent under these circumstances as possible. That didn't happen in the episode. And I think that might have been a mistake, not necessarily from a story point of view, but certainly from a strategic or tactical point of view. Hmm. Did you have to run drill after drill after the anthrax attack? to get ready for a possible next one? Yes, we actually have. Uh, they still do that today. Drills have become part of life on Capitol Hill. It feels a little bit like the lack of transparency in the West Wing episode was because people had gotten so blasé about the drills that they needed to inject um, some element of uncertainty, you know, in terms of the people participating to make sure that they, they really did everything that they needed to. Did it get to a point where you'd done so many drills where people were just sort of like so annoyed by the disruption of their schedule and the work that they had to do that they stopped taking the drills as seriously as maybe they needed to? Well, I think that is a danger. I, I Frankly, I think people are so sensitized to the security challenges we face on Capitol Hill. I mean, you've got to go through metal detectors just to get in the room. And there have been ricin attacks. There have been strange packages that uh, were very suspect that generated a great deal of anxiety. I, th I would say the anxiety level may have subsided somewhat on Capitol Hill, but it's still there. Mm. And for the average citizen, uh, for those listening who are going to be uh, concerned, I think rightfully so, by what you have to say about a lack of preparation, what can the average citizen do to pressure our legislators or to help? Well, I think it's important for the average citizen, first of all, to know how real these threats really are. I think much to our credit in some respects, we don't spend a lot of time worrying about things that aren't immediate. And so I think that's probably good for our 
psyche. But I think we've got to understand this isn't some hypothetical threat. This will happen again. So we have to first be aware. And as people aware, you know, this isn't just a federal issue. This isn't something that we need only to be concerned about in Washington. This is a local issue, too. Local first responders are really going to be the first people on scene. And we've got to make sure that our mayors and our governors and our legislators at the state level all take this seriously, that we have plans for dealing with the proactive and and reactive requirements uh, in circumstances like this. Senator, I want to ask you maybe a more personal question. You mentioned the the migraines that you suffered in the wake of the stress and the aftermath of 9-11. How do people carry on and live, you know, through their day-to-day life balancing sort of the sensitivity to the possibilities out there and also still having a way to live that isn't racked by stress and fear to an extent where, you know, maybe their mental health or their physical health is actually negatively impacted. Well, that's a great question. And I, I don't think there's any one silver bullet or some simple answer to that uh, complicated question about how do you live with the threat of bioterror so real? You know, I, I think we can take lessons from other threats that we've had to experience, the nuclear threat. What you have to assume is that we're doing everything we can to prevent it, that we've done everything we can proactively using diplomatic and uh, and other means to bring down that threat level as much as possible, having whatever means necessary to respond when or if it occurred, and, and certainly having the capacity medically, physically, and in public policy to deal with the aftermath of an exchange God forbid it would ever happen. I think we have to have that same mentality with regard to biodefense. What are we doing proactively to do everything possible to make sure that it never happens? But then secondly, we have to be reactive. Uh, Having medical countermeasures ready and having multi-year funding to accommodate the capacity for medical countermeasures is really important. Well, we know that you're a member of the Blue Ribbon Study panel on biodefense, and we're going to include on our website a link to the recommendations that, that you made as part of that group. Thank you. So hopefully we can start educating ourselves. Thank you. That would be terrific. That'd be a big help. Senator, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Josh and me and our audience. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good to meet you both. At the beginning of this ring is a very, I find, humorous moment, worthy almost of a Zucker Brothers type uh, airplane type movie, in which at the beginning of this uh, impromptu examination, the doctor, who's very all business and let's get this going, he takes President Bartlett's jacket and then hands it to a nurse or a tech with great intention as if she should kind of rush that to the lab. And then she takes it and she puts it on on the back of the president's chair. (laughs) (laughs) I had to keep watching that. Like, am I, is this only funny to me? Like, you know, he doesn't say it, but it seems like what he should be saying, nurse, get that right to the thing. Okay. And she just kind of opens it up and puts it on the back of the chair. (laughs) That's great. I did. I definitely didn't get that. (laughs) Go back and look at that. Okay. For me, the most interesting part of the Charlie President Debbie stuff is what comes at the end when Debbie's looking up what the possible effects might have been. Mm-hmm. She's at a computer and she's looking over it and she's looking up tularemia, which is what they had said um, was the agent. And she says, It's colorless, odorless, could be stored in a sealed envelope, but it's sensitive to ultraviolet light. It is contagious. Some nut could have mailed it to Charlie. 
she now knows what the deal is, but she's just plagued by the possibility of what could have happened. And uh, the president says, you'll drive yourself crazy with this. I like that we go out on her on her phone, too. You know, yeah. all the unlikely people sort of to close out this episode on. It's Debbie and her personal life and how this moment has affected her and then just a little glimpse into her personal life. It's true. I mean, it is unfathomable, I think, for me. And that's why I asked the senator this question of just like, how do you take this information in and then just keep on moving? You have to be able to compartmentalize that in a way that sometimes feels impossible. And then another in a series of my asking you to clarify aspects of an episode for me, we are left to understand that this was a real, a genuine crisis and a potential attack that Ron Butterfield and the president are trying to sell to Charlie and Fitterer as a drill and to everyone as a planned drill. They want everyone else to think it's just a false alarm. But in fact, there was a contagion of some sort detected, right? No. And then we later see, no, am I wrong? I think, so there are three possible scenarios, right? One is that there was an actual attack. One is that there was a live drill. And the other is that there was a false alarm. And so what actually happened was a live drill, but they want to tell everybody that it was a false alarm because the live drill actually is a meaningful tool for them to learn how to defend against themselves. But they don't want to tell anybody that it was a live drill because they don't want to advertise or broadcast the fact that they might have learned something or gotten better at detecting I, this kind of... I thought there was a... Th see, that's not how I saw the ending. I thought they take... Charlie and Fitterer into their confidence and say, we're going to try to sell this as a false alarm. You guys can know that it was a live drill. But then they leave the room and they're like, they didn't seem to question that. Led me to believe that in fact, something real was going on. I agree with you that that was unclear. What I'm giving is what my interpretation ah, of it is, is I definitely see. an er interpretation. I think it's really, it's just the, the line from Ron that says they didn't question it is the thing that throws it into confusion. Otherwise, I, I feel like, yeah, it was a live drill, which is a higher level of uh, secrecy. Well, but see, to me, there's a second piece of evidence that suggests that this is not a live drill, but a real drill, which is to me that there's a scene early on where Butterfield and... President Bartlett are having a conversation sotto voce about what's going on. In other words, it doesn't seem to be for anyone else's benefit, although Charlie's in the room, and they're talking about it as if it's real. I don't know why they would have had that conversation if this were, in fact, a live drill. So at the end of the thing, Butterfield says, Tularemia won't get through again. Meaning I think that this actually, somebody had tried to attack with tularemia. I don't know. Now I'm questioning my my uh, interpretation of it. But for consistency's sake, I'm going to stick with it. I think it was a live drill, and they don't want to tell people because they don't want to let people know. Like, if people want to keep attacking them with tularemia, fine. It's not going to work. And they don't want to let people know that they've figured it out. All right. <laughs> All right, now I'm questioning my interpretation of it. Let's text Eli and find out. Let's use the Eli bat phone. Exactly. He's always right next to it. He's always so good. Okay, hold on. Hey, Eli. Josh and I are confused about something in No Exit. POTUS tells Charlie and Debbie that it was a live drill, meaning no one was told it was a drill, but that they should tell others. In fact, it was a false alarm. But then Butterfield says to POTUS privately, they didn't question it, as if maybe the truth is that it wasn't a live drill, meaning dot, dot, dot. Maybe there really was an attack, and there are two layers of deception happening question mark question mark could you let us know if you know the answer question mark send normally now we would stop recording and wait for a response but knowing eli 
I think we can just stay on the air. And, uh, <laughs> you know, All right, here's Eli. <laughs> oh, oh, there it is. Okay. Wow, that was quick. Here's his reply. Eli wrote, that's exactly right. In the end, it turns out that it wasn't exactly a drill, though it was a highly manageable situation. Just a guy who was trying to get a hold of dangerous bacteria, tularemia, which my brother was doing research on at the time. Hmm. It was sort of a grace note, as I recall, not a grave scandal-like crisis. Thanks, Eli. But something (laughs) potentially serious for which every precaution was taken, because that's how we do things. Kind of like the AF1 issue in Angel Maintenance during season four. Okay, not entirely clear still, but at least I was right. I was onto something where (laughs) it wasn't just a drill. Right. I end this episode slightly confused. Fair enough. As I start most episodes, (laughs) it's only fair. I bet uh, people will get into it on the site. The site being thewestwingweekly.com. Please leave us a comment there, uh, even if you aren't confused. Just tell us how much you like Josh. Yeah. That doesn't happen a lot in the site, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Thanks so much to our guests, Wilson Cruz, Eli Addy, and former Senator Tom Daschle, for joining us uh, on this jam-packed episode. Yeah, it was a good one, I think. Um, You can find all of them on Twitter. We'll have links to their handles on our website and in the episode description, wherever you've downloaded this podcast. And until next time, thanks so much to Zach McNeese and Margaret Miller and Nick Song for helping us make this episode. Also, this is our last episode before the midterm elections. I feel like this probably goes without saying with the West Wing-loving audience, but please go vote. I like voting too. (laughs) what i love is that you do it all with your heart in it fully yes as i do all things go vote there's a free sticker in it that's true people will do stuff for a free sticker yeah the west wing weekly is a proud member of radiotopia from prx radiotopia of course is a collection of the world's best podcasts found all in one place radiotopia.fm okay okay what's next Hey, here's another Radiotopia show you might enjoy, and it's an award-winning podcast, much like Rishi's Song Exploder, and in contradistinction to our The West Wing Weekly. It's called The Truth. It's a beautifully produced anthology of short scripted stories. Their latest is a four-part serial called The Off Season. And it's a thriller that takes place against the backdrop of the Me Too movement. Here's a clip. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. How hard was it? Yes, thank you. That's a, a good question. Rita, has reaching this level of success been difficult? Oh, of course. I mean, this uh, in this field, a career is always No, no, hard. I'm sorry. That question's not for you. This question is for Bruce. Uh, for me? How hard was your d- when you tried to f*** your former co-host mm. in your dressing room? You know what? We are going to go to a commercial break. Sundial, the film we are discussing, will be in theaters October 17th. And after the break, we will be circling back with more questions for Miss Rita Watts. This is The Conversation. And I'm Bruce Elkins. Bruce, Bruce, come back. Bruce! I don't know whose idea this was, but it was sick. Bruce, Network. Did you know about this? Who let those calls through? Bruce, Larry's calling for you. I talked to Mitch from Advertising. I'm not gonna go march right back out there on the front lines like that. It is not safe for me out there. So subscribe to the award-winning The Truth wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to thetruthpodcast.com. Radiotopia. Radiotopia.